You know, friends, faith is so important that sometimes when you're talking about religion or the Christian religion, we might even say the Christian faith. But do we have in and of ourselves the ability to exercise faith? Well, of course we do. But do we have the ability within ourselves to exercise saving faith? No, we don't. You know, we might often think about faith, but a question we need to ask more is, can that faith save you? Is Jesus your Savior and your Lord? Can you believe in Jesus to be your Savior and nothing more? You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones commented on this by saying, There is nowhere in Scripture where you will find that you can accept Jesus or take him or believe him or receive him as Jesus only, the Savior only, or Christ only. No, no. The person is one and indivisible. And if you think you believe in the in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, without realizing that he is your Lord, I wouldn't hesitate to say that your belief is of no value. You cannot take him as Savior only, because he saves you by buying you with his precious blood. And if you believe, then you must know at once that he is your Lord, You see, that is where the the whole danger comes in, doesn't it? That's the danger you see of dividing justification from sanctification. That's the danger of saying you can be justified without being sanctified. You can't. You cannot be in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ except that he is your Lord. Friends, we are not only saved by grace through faith, But we live by grace through faith. We not only repent when we are saved, but the pattern of our lives should be repentance. True, saving faith assumes this. Jesus is the Lord of your justification and your sanctification. Now, if you remember the, the previous sermon that, I've, that I preached, we went over chapter 2, verse 1 through 13, where James was talking about partiality and how, how under the radar it can appear and, and yet how poisonous and destructive the sin of partiality can be, how it undermines the gospel. And now in the typical James proverbial manner, he moves on to a topic that seems pretty much unrelated. It doesn't appear related at all. But what we see James doing is showing us a sin that was common among the people he was writing to. This sin of partiality. The idea of showing favoritism to one another, primarily because of the the appearance of a person. Or maybe the social status of a person. He says that if you do this, You're a transgressor of the law. 
and the charge in verses 12 through 13 is that they are to speak and act as those who are going to be judged under the law, the law of God. Then the final indictment, he says, is show me, show mercy to one another because mercy triumphs over judgment. But now in verse 14 through 26, James is addressing this same pattern and we continue to see it come up over and over again. Our speech and our actions, our speech and our actions, do they match one another? Are they parallel? Do they work together? Is what you say matching how you live? So with this speech and our actions, James is specifically asking the question this morning in this text. Where does faith fit in? Are we just to have, on one hand, the the speech, or on the other hand, actions? How does faith fit? act as the glue for them. So today, as we we begin our time together, let's read James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. This is God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now what we see James doing first that we need to really grapple with is he's posing a question. James poses a question. In fact, there are six questions in this entire passage. The way that James likes to argue is he poses a question and he'll answer that question. So verse 14 is that question. He starts by saying, what good is it? My brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Now as we go through this passage, 
we see James seeking to answer that one question. And it's the second question in verse 14. The second question, what faith saves a person? What faith saves a person? But James does this by asking the more basic question. What is faith? And as I said, there's, there's several more questions that he brings up in this passage and the whole host of them. But that main idea remains the same through the whole passage. What is saving faith? Now we need to pay attention to the word can. Notice at the beginning of that, that second question there in verse 14, he says, can that faith save? And how it's the same root word, if you were to, to just look at the Greek, if you were to if you look at it, it's the same word as able in chapter 121. Now this connection is important, and it's, it's important to draw out because it shows how James is already, he's already covering, has already covered faith that's able to save. I mean, if you were to just read it real quick, chapter 1, verse 21 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So he's already talked about what can save. But now in chapter 2, verse 14, he is asking if the, if the verbal claim to faith, even though that faith has no works to prove the existence of that faith, is it enough to be able to save? Is the verbal claim enough? James is, is literally trying to solve the problem of people who believe that it's fine to have a profession of faith with no possession of faith. That's it. Just a profession. No works to back up that faith. And we see what James thinks of it when, he, when we look at the statement at the beginning of verse 14. And at the beginning, and in verse 16, he says, What good is it? What good is that? Is it okay to say, I'm a Christian? Take my word for it. Is it okay to say that? And obviously, what James is getting at is, is answering that, that question Can that faith save you? A faith that's simply a verbal claim. And as we find, and as James proves, it's a resounding no. So what is saving faith? In verse 15 through 26, James is going to answer that question. What is saving faith? But what we see first is what faith isn't. What isn't saving faith? So what we see in, in verse 15 is dead faith. What does it mean to have dead faith? Verse 15 through 18 reads this way. If a brother or sister is, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed, for the body, the things necessary for the body, what good is that? So also faith itself, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
This illustration James gives in verse 15 through 16 itself explains the relationship between faith and works. And we see this, this brother or sister, they come, and the example says they don't, they don't have what's necessary for, for life. They don't have clothes on their back. They don't have food to fill their bellies. The passage says this person's poorly clothed, lacking in food. This example is, is operating on the assumption that whoever this, this poor person comes to has what is necessary to see this person clothed, to see this person fed. So this person of, of assumed faith says, go in peace, be warm, be filled, though they don't actually see to it that they are at peace, that they are warm, that they are filled. In verse 14, you see where it says, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, if someone says he has faith, and that, that same idea comes up in verse 16, one of you says, we see this idea coming back of the verbal claim to faith and the verbal desire for this person to be at peace, to be warmed, be filled, but no works to prove that claim. Friends, James is expressing to us that faith is not just a verbal claim. It must be more than that. We see that works would be the the follow-through of that verbal claim. Works would be the filling up of that verbal claim. Works is what gives our faith peace in reference to our fellow man. Works is what gives our faith warmth. Works is what brings our faith Completion. Now, not completion in the sense of completion at the final judgment, but a renewing sense. Friends, don't be deceived into thinking that your voice is the only expression that your faith needs. Don't be deceived into thinking that your voice is the only expression that your faith needs. Is it true faith to think about that lost friend? that you've meant to share the gospel with, I've been there. And you just didn't do it. Again. Beloved, you have an opportunity to speak peace to their souls and see them warmed by the affectionate care of the Father. Friends, is it true faith to say to someone, I'll pray for you, when you don't actually intend to at the moment you say it? And you don't think about it and you forget about it afterwards. Do you want to be used by God to fill up someone else's faith? Pray for them. And a quick tip, friends, pray for them right there. If you say, I'm going to pray for you, pray for them right there. Friends, that's a way to bring warmth to your brother or sister in Christ. Think about the growing Christian. What would blow some wind in their sails? Think about the, the afflicted. Maybe they have a physical affliction like a health issue or, or someone is simply lonely. Ask yourself, what would it look like to exercise faith toward them? See, James teaches us that true faith first isn't just a verbal claim. But another thing he teaches us is that true faith isn't superstition. 
true faith isn't a superstitious, quick believe, quickly believing, quick acceptance kind of thing. When Paul was in Athens in Acts chapter 17, the scripture says that he walked around the city and, and he saw how the city was full of idols. And when Paul begins to speak in verse 22 of chapter 17 in Acts, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are, you are religious. Now in your translation, in many of the, the more traditional translations, the word used in the negative sense would be superstitious. It's because the people in Athens were placing their faith in objects or images, though in reality they had no reason. They had no reason to place their faith in those images. Their understanding was either based on false knowledge or it was based on nothing. Have you ever heard the terms blind faith? Take a leap of faith. Friends, as R.C. Sproul would say, what is blind faith but faith with its eyes shut? Faith is not based on nothing. Faith is not knocking on wood. And it's not somehow more godly to have faith in something that God has not promised in the first place. That, that, then to name it, claim it, prosperity gospel. There's no godliness in it, friends. There's no faith in it. It's faith in nothing. Now, of course, we can't see God. We, we can't see Jesus. Our eyes have not laid upon Christ. But does that mean that Jesus has never been seen? Of course not. What does Peter say in chapter 4 of Acts? He says, we cannot but speak of what we've seen, what we've heard. The apostles put their hands in Jesus' side. The apostles put their fingers in the holes that the nails left. Friends, we don't have an unreasonable faith. Faith isn't superstition. But another thing that faith isn't is sincerity. Verse 18 says, but if someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Remember those, look at those things. Those things are in quote. That's, that's a quote. And then he says, show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Friends, the idea here is you have faith and I have works. And it's, it's okay for us to have one or the other. What do you get if you have someone who just has faith? Faith in what? You get someone who is sincere about what they believe, and their life might even be changed by that belief. But what they believe could be dramatically false. What happens if you get a Christian who just has works and no faith as the root for those works? You get a legalist. Someone who has to follow all the rules to be saved. Friends, is that okay? Is it okay to believe whatever you want as long as you're sincere? The late R.C. Sproul said again, the American truth, which is as American as apple pie, is that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. There are many roads that go to heaven, some Go directly, some by a more circuitous route or indirect. But in the final analysis, all that God really is concerned about 
is that you'd be people of faith. You can have faith in Buddha, in Muhammad, in Moses, in Jesus, in Tao, whoever. And yet, I can't think of any principle that's more plainly and categorically opposed to the universal teaching of sacred scripture, both Old and New Testament, than that idea. Friends, it's, it's possible to be sincerely wrong. Friends, a foundational, an essential element of faith is knowledge. You've got to know the truth up here. You can't be a biblical Christian and believe whatever you want. You know, I can believe all day long that if I jump off a plane without a parachute, I'll be just fine. I can believe all day long that I can step out on I-35 in Dallas and say, I'll be just fine. Friends, that's faith. Isn't it? It is faith. But that faith is not based on true knowledge. Christianity is a religion with a document, a book. We have it in our laps this morning. We have knowledge that's meant to be acquired, and that knowledge is necessary in order for us to behave and live in a way that glorifies God. Friends, another thing that faith isn't is faith isn't invisible. (laughs) Faith is not invisible. The second statement in verse 18 is, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, if right now I were, to, I were to say to you, I have faith, could you tell whether or not I actually had faith? You know, apart from knowing my life, could you, actually, could you actually look at me right now and affirm my statement by just knowing who I am right now? No, you couldn't. Because we can't know that people are telling truth if it's not perceptible, if we can't see it, if we can't touch it, if it's not tangible. But God sees the heart. God knows whether what you say is true or not before you say it. Friends, when you speak, when you obey God's commands, ask yourself this question. What does God see? What does God see as the motive for my obedience? Now up to this point, James has been telling us This is not what faith looks like. In verses 15 through 18, he's saying what dead faith looks like. Dead faith is is a workless faith. But now James is going to to make a pivot. He's going to speak positively about what faith is. So the first positive example we see of faith in this passage is the faith of the demons. The faith of the demons. Verses 19 through 20. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? You know, as we read this, we need to keep in mind the original audience. Who is James speaking to? Of course, he's speaking to us. But in that context, we find in verse chapter 1 of verse 1 of chapter 1, he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. 
So primarily, James is speaking to Jews. So if a Jew were to read verse 19, they would have known exactly what James is talking about. He is talking about the Hebrew Shema. That's what it's called, the Hebrew Shema. And really what that is is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The verse says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we see James here affirming. He even affirms their monotheism. He says, you do well. God is one. But can you imagine being a Jew and reading the next statement? Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. Friends, this is one of those statements that James could have let off with. You you need to sit down for this. See, James is saying, you don't have the faith of the demons. What we learn is that that true faith, saving faith, is more than knowledge of the truth, more than knowing the truth. It's agreeing to that truth. It's agreeing with that truth. And as a Jew, the thought may have come to to their head, I have more faith than the demon. Of course I do. But notice There is something else added to that statement. He said they shudder. Friends, the demons believe in fear. God might say you believe, but you don't even fear me. Friends, James is showing us how the the Jews know the truth, but the demons do too. Jews agree with that truth, Demons do too. Friends, if you were to ask a demon, do you know who Jesus is? Oh yeah, I know who Jesus is. Do you believe that what he says about himself is true other than being a liar? Satan might say, yeah, 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 I I believe that. Friends, Jews have forgotten that shuddering in God's presence is the rumble of obedience. Shuddering in God's presence is the rumble of obedience. James is pointing out that the Jews have forgotten that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. They've forgotten what the plagues in Egypt were meant to do. They've forgotten Sinai. Exodus chapter 14. This is right after the Israelites have passed through the Red Sea. In verse 14, chapter 26 through 31, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians 
So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Friends, the Jews forgot the Red Sea. They forgot what it felt like to tremble a little bit in God's presence. See, friends, we don't, we don't fear God because he's a tyrant that's out to get us. That's not why we fear God. We fear God because we know what the Bible says about our condition. And we believe it. Romans 3 says God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But for those who God has not justified, God remains just. For those who do not place their faith in Jesus Christ alone, God will judge you according to your deeds. He doesn't have to be a tyrant. He just has to be just. And God justifies by grace through faith in Christ, apart from the works of the law. And God's wrath remains on those who do not place their faith in Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But what does fear do, friends? You know, we can know the truth up here. We can even believe the truth. But fear unleashes the emotions. Fear is an emotional thing. It's more than knowledge. It's more than belief. It's an emotion. Edwards would say, you know, God has set the arrow to the string. The bow is bent, ready to loose at the ungodly. God, friends, God is not in the business of coddling our sin. Friends, fear requires urgency. This is what motivated Christian in the pilgrim's progress to start running away from the city of destruction. He had not run far from his door, but his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry out after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on, crying, life, life, eternal life. Fearing God is the abandonment of everything else besides Christ that you hold dear. And holding Christ most dear to your soul. See, once you agree with what God says about you and once you fear God, there's only two directions you can go. You either flee from Him or you run to Him. You will either be like the demons who cry out, God, do not throw us into the abyss. This is why the reformers believed that there needed to be a third element of faith. Knowing the truth, believing the truth. You can believe, you can know, but that's not saving faith. You must also trust the truth and the truth giver. See, faith, faith is not a work in and of itself. Faith is the instrument of salvation. You're not only saved by grace, 
But God gives you the hands as the instruments necessary to lay hold of Christ. He gives you feet that run to Christ. He gives you eyes that are necessary to gaze into the face of Christ. He gives you the lips that shout, I trust you. Faith reposes, rests in the person of Christ. Coming, hearing, seeing, trusting, taking, embracing, knowing, rejoicing, loving, triumphing. As Beaky and Lawson would say, faith is more than knowledge. Faith is more than agreement to that knowledge. But it is not less. What does faith look like that has some teeth to it? What does faith look like that has a fist and some feet? What is faith with some blood running through its veins? A true faith. A saving faith. Or as Martin Luther would like to call it, a living faith. Friends, it requires trust. Do you trust him? Friends, as you think back upon this week, as you think back upon this month, as you think back about this morning, do you trust him? Do you trust God with everything in your life? Father who seeks to put food on the table and yet the check comes in and you don't see enough money there to provide groceries for your family. Do you trust him? Mom who's struggling with how to discipline their children. Grandparent who's struggling with how to talk to their child who seems to be straying. Parents who are struggling with trusting God at whether or not he will save their child at his right time. Do you trust him? Do you trust God? Verses 21 through 26. James goes on to tell us what living faith is. Verse 21 through 26 read this way. Was Abraham, was not Abraham our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. See, verse 20 sets the T for what we, what we see in the following verses, verse 21 through 26. He asks a question. Do you want to be shown that your faith without works is useless? 
And after asking this question, what James does is he shows us, he shows us this by giving us two case studies. He gives us Abraham and he gives us Rahab. He gives us a, an illustration from the life of, of Abraham in Genesis 22 and the other from the life of Rahab in Joshua 6. Now, before we deal with these two examples given here by James, we need to understand what James is doing primarily in two of these verses. So if you remember, if we re- as we read it earlier, the whole passage, verse 22 and 24, and as we read it just now, if you did just a surface reading of, those, of, of verse 22 and 24, you might begin to ask the question, does James disagree with Paul? Is James disagreeing with what Paul says in Romans 3? Do we need to ask ourselves, or we need to ask ourselves the question, how is James using the terms faith and justification? Is he using it in the same way that Paul is using it? And for the sake of time, for the sake of time, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go read Romans chapter three through verse four or through through four, but I would encourage you if you have time this week, go read chapter three and four of Romans. But what I would like to do is turn to Matthew. Matthew 11, verse 18 and 19. Now, a little context to this verse here in Matthew. Jesus is answering an accusation made against John the Baptist and himself. The accusation was that you you come and you're you're eating and you're drinking and, and you're a glutton. But before that, John the Baptist came and he didn't follow the traditions. So both John and Jesus were in bad company. Matthew chapter 11, verse 18 through 19 says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now, a quick question. Is this text saying that wisdom is justified before God by being counted righteous? Well, of course not. That's not what the text is saying. Jesus is saying, through this word in, in Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, that true wisdom is authenticated by the product. True wisdom is authenticated by the product. And interesting enough, friends, it's the same Greek word that both Paul and James use. Same word. So if we were to to use that same same thing here, interpretive, I'd say it's an interpretive principle. James is saying works is what authenticates our verbal claim to faith. Works is what authenticates our verbal claim to faith. See, Paul makes his case for justification by faith alone by appealing to Genesis 15, where the text says that Abraham was counted righteous. But James makes his argument for justification by works by appealing to Genesis 22. 
where Abraham offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Now, obviously, these are two different, two different periods in Abraham's life. And in chapter 15, Isaac wasn't even born yet. And he believed God. Abraham believed God, which was counted to him as righteousness. See, Abraham is authenticating in Genesis 22 his claim to faith in chapter 15. We must understand that James is seeking to answer a different question than Paul is. James and Paul are not talking about necessarily the same thing. Paul is asking, how can an unjust person stand in the presence of a just and holy God? How can we do that? Paul's concern for justification is before God. And that is why Paul says, we hold that that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now pay attention to the words in in this passage. You have the word says or, or say in verse 15, in verse 14, 16, and 18. I'm talking about James James chapter 2, and the word show or, or shown in verse 18 and 20, and the word see in verse 22 and 24. Friends, James is not dealing with our, our positional or vertical justification before God. He is wrestling with our outward, horizontal profession of justification before men. How do we know if someone's faith is genuine. James says, show me. Show me your faith by your works. Now we know and we understand the way James is using the word justification, but, but the answer is the answer that we just need to, to obey God as a result of this. Now, friends, think about what we talked about before. Trusting, truly trusting God leads to obeying God's commands. But obeying God's commands doesn't always mean you trust Him. Truly trusting God leads to obeying God's commands, but obeying God's commands, and that's it, doesn't always mean you trust Him. You know, someone might say, you know, when asked if they're a Christian, well, I, I think my entire life shows that I'm a solid Christian. I've grown up in the church. I've always been religious. I believe the Bible's in the, iner- the inerrant word of God. I have soundly reformed in biblical beliefs. I, I believe the Bible. I read the Bible. I, I pray every day. I never miss church service. I give my money to the church. And I'm very generous to Christian organizations and charities. I attend many reform conferences, as many as I can. I'm a faithful spouse, a good parent, a loyal worker. On these grounds alone, I believe that I'm a Christian. Friends, you can have all these things I just mentioned and not have saving faith. All of them. And not have saving faith. So what's missing? Trust. Beloved, if if you base the reason for why you're a Christian on all the things you do for Jesus and on Judgment Day you cry out, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Was I not as a part of as many service teams as I could be? 
Did I not make it to as many church services as I could? Did I not teach Sunday school? Did I not sing in the choir? Did I not preach your word? Friend, if it is on that basis alone that you claim that you're a Christian, then you will hear the words, I never knew you. Depart from me. Friends, remember back in verse 14, the original question. James doesn't ask, can those works save you? He says, can that faith save you? He knows that faith saves. Can that faith save you? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But that faith never stays alone. God's grace is the breath, faith is the trumpet and works is the triumphant, victorious blast of the trumpet. John Flavel, the the Puritan, wrote this, the soul is the life of the body. Faith is the life of the soul. Christ is the life of faith. True faith utters with Augustus Toplady, nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Friends, if you have a Christless faith, you have a faith that will not save. Now, something we need to look into is, is why does James use these two examples, Abraham and Rahab? There's many other examples he could use. The rest of Scripture is, is littered with all these different examples of men and women who have expressed faith. But why these? What is it about the life of Abraham and Rahab that would make this passage, the, the truth of this passage, vivid? Well, let's read Genesis 22. We read it earlier. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 through 14. The text reads this way. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. And the boy, I and the boy, will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took the knife and took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, And he said, here I am, my son. 
He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham offered the, uh, built the altar there and laid the wood in order and, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him and from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And notice first the way that Genesis 2 starts off. Genesis 22 starts off by saying, God tested Abraham. The text literally says that God did this to test him. God didn't, God didn't do this to make a mockery of Abraham. But he was using this situation in the life of Abraham to test him. The second thing we need to notice is the connection this has with James 1, 2 through 4. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, we know the passage, we read it a while back. The passage says, Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. See God was testing Abraham to see his faith grow. God was testing Abraham to see his faith completed. Notice what James 2.22 says. It says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed, talking about Abraham, by his works. This doesn't mean that Abraham's faith was completed in the sense of, of being finished, as if there's nothing else to add. But God, through this test that he brought into the life of Abraham, was making his faith steadfast. More perfect, more complete. See, God desired Abraham's faith to lack nothing. God wanted the faith of Abraham to be evergreen. What a gracious thing for the Lord to do. Now, would this situation in the life of Abraham qualify as a trial? (laughs) You bet it would. God was asking Abraham to slaughter his own son and offer him up as a sacrifice. Friends, think about this. We get, we get a glimpse into the love of Abraham, the love that he had for his son Isaac when God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. 
The son that that God had already promised he would use to build a nation back in Genesis uh, verse 17, chapter 17. So Abraham, basing his faith on the reality that God had already promised he would use Isaac for this purpose, did not protest, but obeyed God. But can you imagine being in Abraham's shoes? The text says Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, cut the wood for the offering, and went to the place that God had told him. After three days, they arrived there. He's supposed to sacrifice his son Isaac. He left the servants and the donkey they, they brought along with the journey. He laid the wood on his son. He took the fire and the knife in his hand. They went together. Beloved, you can almost hear Abraham whispered to himself early in the morning as he rose. Abraham, do you trust him? As he saddled his donkey, do you trust him? As he grabbed the axe to chop wood for the offering, Abraham, oh Abraham, do you trust him? As he grabbed the knife to slaughter his son, his only son, the son he loved, Abraham, do you trust him? But God fulfilled his promise to Abraham and strengthened Abraham's faith by providing a ram to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. Friends, as Jesus was on his face praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he uttered, My Father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Friends, we often forget that Jesus, being truly man and truly God, was a man of perfectly completed, full, vibrant faith. While Jesus was in the garden, his petition did not have an ounce of doubt in it. Jesus could say with full assurance and boldness, Father, I trust you and obey perfectly. Jesus marched to the cross knowing that on the third day his Father would raise him from the dead. Being victorious over death and sin forever. As Abraham laid the wood on his son, so Jesus took upon himself all the sins for those who would believe in him. And as Abraham took the knife in his hand, so the father had readied his wrath to be unleashed on the sinner. You and me. And as God provided a substitute for Abraham's son, so God provided a substitute in Christ for all those who place their faith in him. Jesus was the man of perfect faith. And because of his life and work on the cross, you and I can have life. 
Friends, place your faith in Christ. Through the instrument of the cross, you and I can be given the instrument of faith. Now, friends, think about Rahab. Rahab's story was one that I couldn't read, maybe for the sake of time, but friends, read it. Think about Rahab. As Abraham had to offer up his own son, so Rahab had to offer up her life. She feared the Lord. She knew what he said. She believed what he said. And her faith, she trusted God. Friends, it doesn't matter if you're an Israelite, you're an Israelite patriarch, or you're a prostitute. We are all saved by grace. It doesn't matter. One end of the spectrum to the other. So what is faith? J.I. Packer answered the question this way. I believe that faith is the most important thing in the world. By which I mean that faith is the link between ourselves and a God of transforming love who saves us from sin and folly and ultimate disaster, who brings us into a life of joy and peace and wisdom and fruitfulness. Faith means, quite simply, trusting Him by believing what He's told us. And remember, the real God, the God of the Scriptures, is a God who has revealed Himself. He has spoken he has given us promises to trust. Faith trusts them. And the effect of trusting the promises and trusting the God of the promises is literally transforming. Whoever you are, you need this. And so I simply say, don't allow yourself to fancy that you've got faith. When all that you really have is a general sort of optimism or hopefulness about the future, you only have faith when you have learned to trust God, trust His Word, and treat Him as a partner in your life whom you are trusting. In the way that you would treat a spouse, a good friend, any human who has given you promises and on whom you rely to keep those promises once given. Friend, are you religious, but you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian? You need this. Are you here because you're, you're curious about this thing called Christianity? You need this. Are you a new, zealous believer? You need this. Are you afflicted in some way? Maybe you're sick. Elderly, or you're, you're seeing your body decay in ways that you've never seen until now. Friends, you need this. Are you a troubled mom wondering how to faithfully care for her children? You need this. Are you single wondering when the day will come, when or if God will bring your future spouse? You need this. Are you fighting temptation and you're having a hard time seeming to, to overcome? 
Friends, you need this. Are you a sinner? (laughs) You need faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that the work of salvation is entirely monergistic. It's it's a one-way path that you build in order to make us alive, cause us to be born again. But Lord, please help us understand that it is by faith we are saved and by faith we live. Help us see that by grace through faith we are sanctified. And Lord, it is only through knowing the truth, believing that truth, trusting that truth, and the truth giver that we can obey and do it in a way that's faithful to your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the chance that we have to be sitting here in a building where we're not persecuted. Lord, I ask that you would cause in each of our hearts a greater and deeper desire to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.